Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 370 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 17, Lunar Module Pilot Harrison Smith. Jack Schmidt was picked as one of the first six original scientist astronauts in 1965. People said he had a fanatical focus upon Apollo. There were some of his colleagues who, who doubted that he had any other life apart from Apollo. Uh, but he got himself noticed for the right reasons, totally committed, changed geology training for the astronauts, raised the profile of geology within the entire program. I met Harrison Schmidt uh, on Apollo 15. He was the backup lunar module pilot. The experiments that I was working on had to be exercised by each crew member before we loaded them into the lunar module and sent them off to the moon. So Harrison Schmidt came over to have a look at the experiments and picked up the magnifying glass and he looked at it and he said, do you know what a geologist does when he finds a rock to look at? And we said, no. And he said, he does this. He said, have you ever tried doing that in a spacesuit? <laughs> but he was a great guy to work with, very easy and, and very professional, as most of them were. Well, it was a great opportunity. I, I get to talk about it all the time. And uh, some people ask me, do I ever dream about it? And I guess the answer has to be no, because I'm talking about it all the time. It doesn't seem to be uh, something that happens. But uh, uh, people are, all, are amazingly interested in uh, space, and yes. I guess often wondering why in the world have we pulled back, and uh, we'll just wait and see. Maybe we haven't in the long term. I don't think we have. So. Those clips were from the documentary Untold Story of the Last Man on the Moon and an interview with Harrison Smith. Harrison Hagen Smith, or Jack Smith, was born July 3, 1935, in Santa Rita, New Mexico. Schmidt grew up in nearby Silver City and was a graduate of Western High School class of 1953. So what were you like in high school? Were you were interested in weather, but were you a straight-A science student? What were you like? Well, I was, I was interested in weather. Okay. I was a science student. Uh, I was a nerd, I'm sure, okay. but I also played football and uh, okay. and uh, and worked out at track and things like that. So I I and took part in student government. So I I tried to do everything I could. That's been uh, really something that's uh, either I don't think it's planned, but it's happened in my life. Mm -hmm. I've been able to do a lot of different things uh, all through my life, and yeah. it's been a very uh, very enjoyable experience. Harrison received a Bachelor of Science degree in geology from the California Institute of Technology in 1957 and then spent a year studying geology at the University of Oslo in Norway as a Fulbright Scholar. He received a Ph.D. in geology from Harvard University in 1964 based on his geological field studies in Norway. Well, I, uh, I had uh, uh, looked at a lot of different universities to go to, okay. and, uh, but I was doing so many other things that when I received these packets of application forms, they were all eight, ten pages, and I, I don't have time to do this. And, for, and the Caltech form was 
One page. Okay. Two sides of one page. Easy. And so I fill out a Caltech <laughs> form. And it happened that my father, who was a geologist, okay. knew some of the people at Caltech and thought they were, they were good folks and it was a good place to go. So I just ended up applying to Caltech and, uh, and fortunately had an opportunity to get a really outstanding education in science and engineering at Caltech and, uh, and also the opportunity through an advisor, Ian Campbell, to apply for a Fulbright Fellowship mm -hmm. to Norway, which uh, turned out to be a fantastic experience as well. And then after that, went on to Harvard for a doctorate. Then Jack worked at the U.S. Geological Survey's Astrogeology Center at Flagstaff, Arizona, where he became an expert on lunar field exploration and a recognized authority on photographic and telescopic mapping of the moon. When astronauts were trained on lunar geology, Jack was one of the instructors and remained as NASA's in-house geologist even while undergoing flight and astronaut training himself. He was among just a handful of experts allowed to analyze the rocks brought back from the moon. In June, 1965, Smith was selected by NASA as a member of the first group of scientist astronauts. Any point in that early part of your life, did it ever cross your mind that you wanted to be an astronaut? I didn't have that opportunity because yeah. there weren't any yeah. astronauts yeah. during that time. I read science fiction and, right. and, uh, and of course, was uh, had thought very briefly about uh, space travel in okay. a science fiction point of view. But the first real exposure I had uh, to thinking about space was when I was in Norway and the first artificial satellite of the Earth was launched by the then Soviet Union, Sputnik 1. And uh, when I returned from my field area uh, to Oslo, the University of Oslo, the international student community there was very, very intrigued by this. And you could tell that space was going to be something uh, important to the future of uh, humankind as well as the future of our country. I know some of my uh, student friends from, from Caltech had gone into the missile industry and, mm -hmm. and things like that. Uh, it didn't really uh, occur to me that I might apply to become an astronaut until the uh, announcement of opportunity to do so appeared on a bulletin board where I was working in Flagstaff, Arizona. Wow. And I looked at it and said, well, about 10 seconds of thought and said, why not raise your hand and volunteer? So I volunteered. Yeah, NASA had, and yeah. the National Academy of Sciences yeah. had sent out a, an advertisement saying they're looking for applications from scientists. Right. And uh, it seemed like a logical thing to do. Uh, I had known a few years before the National Academy had said the first person on the moon should be a hard rock geologist. Well, that's what there I was. Go. Sure, sure. <laughs> and so I said, why not? Let's see, if I, let's see where it goes. Well, the National Academy ran the selection process initially. And they, uh, they had 1,400 applicants. Uh, they were required to take a... a Federal Aviation Administration physical, okay. and that narrowed it down to about uh, 400 applicants. Okay. And then they asked for more information, transcripts and things like that, and they selected 80 people to, to evaluate in detail uh, with essays and, okay. and things like that. There weren't interviews at that time. And, uh, and then out of that 80, 16 were selected to, to uh, names were selected to send to NASA for a uh, very comprehensive physical examination. That was an eight-day physical examination at Brooks Air Force Base in San Antonio. And, uh, and out of that uh, 16, uh, uh, and then some interviews that NASA conducted, they selected six of us to actually be the first group of scientists in the uh, space program. Since Harrison did not know how to fly an aircraft, he spent his first year at Air Force undergraduate pilot training, learning to become a jet pilot. The first requirement was to go to pilot training. So okay. you had to be qualified for jet pilot training. And uh, with that, however, uh, Randy Lovelace, uh, the Lovelace uh, group mm -hmm. here in uh, Albuquerque, was NASA's, uh, on a consulting basis, was NASA's chief flight surgeon. And uh, he uh, intervened in, uh, in my case 
and said, you're fine. You should, you should be, uh, be fine. And actually, I got a phone call from Randy Lovelace before I ever got any notice from NASA oh, wow. saying, you're, you're going to be in. So that was remarkable. I never had a chance to meet Dr. Lovelace. Mm -hmm. uh, he died about six months later in that plane crash. The first thing was uh, jet pilot training. Okay. Uh, became a T-38 pilot. Uh, a couple years later, became a helicopter pilot. Uh, everybody had to qualify in helicopters as well. Upon Jack's return to the astronaut corps in Houston, he played a key role in training Apollo crews to be geologic observers when they were in lunar orbit and competent geologic field workers when they were on the lunar surface. After each of the landing missions, he participated in examination and evaluation of the returned lunar samples and help the crews with the scientific aspects of their mission reports. Smith also spent considerable time becoming proficient in the command service module and lunar module systems. And, but then it was a process of, uh, of learning uh, all the things that go into spaceflight, orbital mechanics, the engineering side of things, getting familiar with the spacecraft, with computers, uh, with the process of, of, of actually flying in space. Do you feel like you enjoyed that training time, or was it very stressful to the point it, where you questioned what you were? The training was stressful, but it was very enjoyable because okay. you're you're competing all the time with yourself, and and it turns out the crew is always competing with the flight controllers to see if they can see in the in the computer simulations the problems that the simulation supervisor has introduced in, as part of the training process. Uh, and most of our training was to try to solve problems that might, might happen to us. None of those problems ever actually happened, but they had problems. And uh, knowing how, on each mission, how to deal with the concept of a problem was very important. In March 1970, Jack became the first of the scientist astronauts assigned to a spaceflight, joining Richard F. Gordon Jr. and Vance Brand on the Apollo 15 backup crew. And then uh, in 19, early 1970, mm -hmm. I was uh, assigned to the backup crew of Apollo mm -hmm. 15. And that's when the real training goes. And for 15 months, you learn how to fly a mission. And, uh, and uh, you get even more deeply involved in the details, the engineering details of the spacecraft and of the uh, flight operations necessary for these missions. The flight rotation put the backup crew of Apollo 17 in line to fly as prime crew on the third following mission, which was Apollo 18. But when Apollo 18 and 19 were canceled in September of 1970, the community of lunar geologists supporting Apollo felt so strongly about the need to land a professional geologist on the moon that they pressured NASA to reassign Schmidt to a remaining flight. As a result, Schmidt was assigned in August 1971 to fly on the last mission, Apollo 17, replacing Joe Engel as lunar module pilot. Schmidt would land on the moon with Commander Gene Cernan in December of 1972. Of course, not everyone was delighted about Harrison Schmidt, or as he was nicknamed, Dr. Rock, replacing Joe Engel on the crew of Apollo 17. Most notably disappointed was his commander on the mission, Gene Cernan. In his book, Gene wrote this about Dr. Rock. He doesn't exactly fit the test pilot profile, does he? Jack was tightly focused and spartan in his personal life, quiet and hard to get to know. He had a passion for thinking. At such times, you could almost hear the wheels turning inside his skull. On a first introduction, he usually came across as unlikable. And his taciturn nature and brashness made it hard for people to get close to him. He didn't seem to care. That was part of the problem. For Jack just wasn't my kind of guy. He was often a sarcastic character with a caustic personality who didn't seem to know how to fit in socially. But in the end, 
Jean had to admit that Jack proved to be a perfectly competent astronaut as well as being a genius-type pebble pusher. During the flight of Apollo 17, after translunar injection, Schmidt claims to have taken the photograph of the Earth known as the Blue Marble. This is possibly the most widely distributed photographic image in existence. NASA officially credits the image to the entire Apollo 17 crew. We had two orbits of the Earth before uh, we were going to restart that third stage rocket that had inserted us into orbit in order to accelerate to 25,000 miles an hour and go to the moon. At a distance of 45,000 kilometers, the crew took what is believed to be the most widely distributed photographic image of all time. Famously known as the Blue Marble, this incredible image was the first picture of the fully illuminated face of planet Earth. We are seeing the Earth as it truly is, a grand oasis in the vastness of space. We take our planet for granted, but seeing it like that, sort of isolated from everything, it just gave a different perspective. And I think in some ways it almost stimulated the environmental movement. We saw our planet as a whole, and we saw it as vulnerable. The picture of the Earth as a blue marble brought home to people how fragile our Earth is and how stupid all the arguments are between nations. We're just all on this big spaceship together, and we better get along. No human being has since been at a distance where taking a whole Earth photograph like this has been possible. Exactly which of the Apollo crew took this amazing image is unclear, but like so many other aspects of the Apollo program, this breathtaking photograph changed our perception of our beautiful planet forever. I grew up in in the Silver City area of New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And my father uh, introduced me to uh, meteorology. And so we, as a child, uh, we uh, spent a lot of time talking about weather, trying to forecast the next storm that would come through and things like that. And so I, I carry that with me, really, for a long time. I've always been interested in, in weather patterns. Okay. And when I knew that I'd have uh, three, three and a half days on the way to the moon, in which there would be some downtime, uh, I decided to have an actual observing program in my mind uh, for looking back at the Earth. And as the Earth rotated, I would be every 24 hours, I would be able to see whether my forecasts of weather patterns, southern hemisphere weather patterns, uh, were any good or not. And so I spent three and a half days doing that. And the the picture of the full Earth with Africa mm -hmm. uh, fully uh, illuminated is uh, the first of the pictures I took to document my weather observations. So the blue marble, <laughs> that photo, the blue marble, that there was a lot of thought that went into it. Oh, there and was. And a lot of planning. Yeah, very, very definitely. And okay. there's a series of pictures that take, will take you, see the Earth change its weather uh, image all the way to the moon. Uh, so that was the first of them, and if you look carefully at it, you'll see that there's a, uh, a typhoon, a, a hurricane going ashore on India. There are these beautiful uh, arrowhead-shaped fronts that are circling Antarctica. It really shows you a lot about the weather of the Earth. On the trip out to the moon, Harrison gained his first experience with weightlessness. Here's how he described it. Well, f physically, it was uh, being exposed to weightlessness for the first time, right. and uh, that, uh, that is an interesting experience. Everybody reacts somewhat differently to it. It's a very individualistic thing. Uh, and uh, in my case, I felt like I was swimming, in, but with no water, okay. uh, if you can imagine that. If you, uh, in fact, uh, uh, trying to go to sleep the first night, uh, I, I finally got relaxed enough mm -hmm that I realized just before I started to doze off that I had lost perception of my arms and my legs. The muscles had gotten so relaxed that they were no longer activating nerves that told you where your arms and legs were. All you had to do was think about moving them and they'd come back. So I, was, I spent about half an hour turning my arms and legs on and off. Yeah, just to make and, sure they were still okay. Yeah, and you can do that here on Earth if you are willing to, to, to relax in warm water about body temperature water, 
Okay. Gradually that will happen, but uh, it's not something you normally experience. I'd never experienced it. Smith was the only geologist in the astronaut corps that walked on the moon. Here's how he described the experience. It's one of those experiences you have in life that uh, is unique to yourself, and, uh, and your reactions to it are unique. Uh, it, and if you can imagine those experiences that you've had, and I hope you've had many, where you have thought about it, you've talked to others about it, family, friends, but when the event actually takes place, it's more than you ever could have anticipated, whether standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon or some other experience like that in your life, the first child or any child being born. Uh, that's the kind of experience that uh, I think uh, those of us that had the uh, privilege and honor of going to the moon have had. Do you remember the first emotion you felt when you stepped on the moon for the very first time? Oh, I can. I uh, said... So because I, my foot went out from under me. It slipped on a rock. And I said, oh, don't fall. <laughs> said to myself, don't fall. And that was so that first was the first emotion. That's and great. you have to realize that uh, initially we're working right around the lunar module Challenger. And this was a very familiar machine for us. We had worked with it. Uh, our training encompassed it. And so the vision you have out of your helmet is still something that's very familiar to you. And you haven't had a chance to move away from the spacecraft and actually take in the, the scenes around you. We had landed in a valley deeper than the Grand Canyon. Uh, the Valley of Taurus Letro on the moon is, uh, is one of the deepest valleys in the, actually in the solar system. Uh, it is uh, a really a magnificent place to see once you have a chance to move away from the spacecraft. The mountains are uh, over uh, six and 7,000 feet high. Uh, there's... Uh, brilliantly illuminated by the sun, but they're against a black sky, a blacker than black sky. And all of it is, and of course, if you look up over the southwestern mountain in this part of the moon, you'll see the earth. Uh, it's always hanging in the same place in the sky. So uh, the whole experience, visual experience, is really quite remarkable. Due to Jack's geological experience, the Lunar Surface Exploration Plan was left a little more flexible than previous missions so he could pick the best spots to explore. The, our flight plan for Apollo 17 was much more open for the lunar surface mm -hmm. activities than the previous flight plans were. Be, even though we had trained and, and made a point of training the pilots to be pretty good geologists, right. uh, it was, they, they didn't have the experience base that I did. And yeah. so we kept the Apollo 17 lunar surface flight plan uh, as open as we could so I would have a chance uh, when we got to a particular place that we had planned to go that I'd have a chance to look around and say yeah this is probably the best approach to getting the samples that we want to have here at this point. During one of their moonwalks Jack was involved in the discovery of an orange colored soil on the moon's surface. Dr. Schmidt realized that such yellow to orange coloration in rocks on Earth was usually due to hydrated iron oxides. In a volcanic region, these minerals are produced from water-rich vapors reacting with the lavas and emanating from gas vents associated with a volcano. Well, it, it was part of that whole process of, of examining the area around this little crater we call Shorty Crater, about an 80-meter uh, diameter crater, uh, and uh, one which we thought we might uh, see some volcanic stuff, but it was, a, it was a remote possibility, but it was part of the pre-mission thinking. And I, uh, I was walking up to the edge of the crater and noticed that there was this orange tint to the soil uh, that I was walking on, and I started to dig into that soil and found this bright orange uh, ash is what it was. Mm -hmm. It turned out to be volcanic ash. I didn't know at the time because it was so fine. I couldn't see it. It was much finer than you could see with your eye. Uh, but wow. it was different. It was very different and it, uh, it, it immediately brought to mind the colorful rocks we see here in New Mexico that are around our volcanoes. And you huh. think, well, maybe that's an alteration as a result of some volcanic activity. Well, it was certainly the result of volcanic activity, but explosive uh, volcanic activity that had occurred three and a half billion years ago. <laughs> and this just happened to be protected uh, until that little crater exposed it 
and uh, we found it on Apollo 17. Smith also collected the rock sample designated Troctolite 76535, which has been called, without a doubt, the most interesting sample returned from the moon. Among other distinctions, it is the central piece of evidence suggesting that the moon once possessed an active magnetic field. At the end of the lunar portion of Apollo 17, as Harrison returned to the lunar module before Gene Cernan, Smith is the next to last person to have walked on the moon's surface. Since the death of Cernan in 2017, Smith is the most recent person to have walked on the moon who is still alive. After the completion of Apollo 17, Smith played an active role in documenting the Apollo geologic results and also took on the task of organizing NASA's Energy Program Office. On August 30, 1975, Smith resigned from NASA to seek election as a Republican to the United States Senate representing New Mexico in the 1976 election. Smith campaigned for 14 months and his campaign focused on the future. In the Republican primary held on June 1, 1976, Smith defeated Eugene Pierce. In the general election, Smith opposed two-term Democrat incumbent Joseph Montoya. He defeated Montoya 57% to 42% of the vote. I was, grew up being very interested in politics. My, uh, both my mother and father were very interested, and uh, they read a lot, and I read a lot, and I, mean, I'm very, I read a lot of history. And so it was a fairly natural thing for me to do that once it was clear that the career as an astronaut was, was dying out, uh, at least in time, was dying out, that uh, I would look at what I had thought about doing uh, many, uh, many years before while I was a student at Harvard. Harrison served one term and notably was the chairman of the Science, Technology, and Space Subcommittee of the United States Senate Committee on Commerce. He sought a second Senate term in 1982, facing State Attorney General Jeff Bingaman. Bingaman attacked Smith for not paying enough attention to local matters. His campaign slogan was, quote, What on earth has he done for you lately? End quote. This, combined with the deep recession, proved too much for Smith to overcome. He was defeated 54 to 46% of the vote. Following his Senate term, Smith was a consultant in business, geology, space, and public policy. He was an adjunct professor of engineering physics at the University of Wisconsin in Madison and has long been a proponent of lunar resource utilization. In 1997, he proposed the Interlune Intermars Initiative, listing among its goals the advancement of private sector acquisition and use of lunar resources, particularly lunar helium, as a fuel for notional nuclear fusion reactors. Smith served as chair of the NASA Advisory Council whose mandate is to provide technical advice to the NASA administrator. He served from November 2005 until his abrupt resignation on October 16, 2008. But this did not end his interest in space travel. In 2006, Smith wrote the book entitled Return to the Moon, Exploration, Enterprise, and Energy in the Human Settlement of Space. When asked the question when he thought humans may arrive on Mars, this is what he replied. Well, I've actually written a book on that subject, and I think that if we uh, uh, begin to move uh, quickly to uh, utilize some of the resources on the moon, to settle the moon, that we can be on Mars within, uh, within 
probably three decades without, yes. without any question. I think you almost have to have the private sector involved, though, because it, there has to be a continuity, more of a continuity bef beyond what government is often able to do. Government funding is, is cyclic. It depends on so many other things. Whereas if you have an entrepreneurial private sector enterprise and, and it's done right, then that funding can be more or less continuous and you can, you can set a schedule and keep to that schedule. It's much more difficult with the government. Now, Apollo was an exception. Apollo was an exception because we had a, a very large, what is called a management reserve. That It was about uh, double what had been estimated the cost would be. Uh, and that mean, mean, meant it was possible to deal with the unknown unknowns that come along in complex projects and, and maintain a schedule. Mm -hmm. And so Apollo did exactly what uh, John Kennedy asked us to do, to get to the moon mm -hmm. by the end of the decade. Uh, that, uh, unless you have that management reserve, though, it's very difficult to keep on schedule. And NASA's discovered that over the last several decades. However, in November 2008, he quit the Planetary Society over policy advocacy differences, citing the organization's statements on focusing on Mars as the driving goal of human spaceflight. Smith said that going back to the moon would speed progress toward manned Mars missions. On the Planetary Society's goal of accelerating research into global climate change through more comprehensive Earth observations, Smith voiced objections to the notion of a present scientific consensus on climate change as any policy guide, and on international cooperation, which Harrison felt would slow rather than accelerate progress. Schmidt has very strong opinions on global warming. His view on climate change emphasizes natural over human factors as driving climate. Schmidt has expressed the view that the risk posed by climate change are overrated and suggest instead that climate change is a tool for people who are trying to increase the size of government. He resigned his membership in the Planetary Society primarily because of its Mars First policy, but also because of its stance on global warming. Writing in his resignation letter that the, quote, global warming scare is being used as a political tool to increase government control over American lives, incomes, and decision-making. It has no place in the society's activities, end quote. Smith spoke at the March 2009 International Conference on Climate Change, sponsored by the Heartland Institute. He appeared in December that year on the Fox Business Network and said, quote, the CO2 scare is a red herring, end quote. In a 2009 interview with conspiracy theorist and radio host Alex Jones, Smith asserted a link between the collapse of the Soviet Union and the American environmental movement, saying, quote, I think the whole trend really began with the fall of the Soviet Union because the great champion of the opponents of liberty, namely communism, had to find some other place to go, and they basically went into the environmental movement, end quote. At the Heartland Institute's sixth international conference on climate change, Smith said that climate change was a stalking horse for national socialism. Smith co-authored a May 8, 2013 Wall Street Journal opinion column with William Harper contending that increasing levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere are not significantly correlated with global warming. Attributing the, quote, single-minded demonization of this natural and essential gas, end quote, to advocates of government control of energy production, noting a positive relationship between crop resistance to drought and increasing carbon dioxide levels. The authors argued, quote, 
Contrary to what some would have us believe, increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere will benefit the increasing population on the planet by increasing agricultural productivity. End quote. Smith also served as a visiting senior research scientist at the Florida Institute for Human and Machine Cognition. And in January 2011, he was appointed as secretary of the New Mexico Energy, Minerals, and Natural Resources Department in the cabinet of Governor Susana Martinez. But he was forced to give up the appointment the following month after refusing to submit to a required background investigation. El Paso Times called him the most celebrated candidate for New Mexico Energy Secretary. In popular culture, Smith was portrayed by Tom Amandez in the 1998 miniseries From the Earth to the Moon. Jack also appeared in an episode of Bill Nye the Science Guy. Smith is one of the astronauts featured in the 2007 documentary In the Shadow of the Moon. He also contributed to the 2006 book NASA's Scientist Astronaut by David Shaler and Colin Burgess. Harrison won numerous awards and recognitions. I'll mention a few. NASA Distinguished Service Medal. He was made an honorary fellow of the Geological Society of America for his efforts in geoscience. In 1989, he received the G.K. Gilbert Award. One of the elementary schools in Smith's hometown of Silver City, New Mexico, was named in his honor in the mid-70s. An image of the astronaut riding a rocket through space is displayed on the front of Harrison Smith Elementary School. AAPG's special award has been changed to the Harrison Smith Award in 2011. It recognizes individuals or organizations that, for a variety of reasons, do not qualify for other association honors or award. Smith received the medal in 1973 for his contribution as the first geologist to land on the moon and study its geology. 2015, he received the Leif Erikson Exploration Award, awarded by the Exploration Museum for his scientific work on the surface of the moon in 1972 and for his part in the geology training of all the astronauts that walked on the moon before him. Smith was one of five inductees into the International Space Hall of Fame in 1977. He was one of 24 Apollo astronauts who were inducted into the U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame in 1997. Smith still lives in Silver City, New Mexico and spends some of his summer at his northern Minnesota lake cabin. Smith is also involved in several civic projects, including the improvement of the Senator Harrison H. Smith Big Sky Hang Glider Park in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host. I want to say thanks for listening to episode number 370 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 17, Lunar Module Pilot Harrison Smith. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Uh, first, a very important announcement. Thanks to my web host, GoDaddy. I have had to change my email address. Please update your records. If you need to contact me, use the address spacerockethistory at gmail.com. That is spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Our next episode will be posted in a couple of weeks, hopefully by September 2nd. If you would like to be notified by email, 
When new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and typing in your email on the form on the right side of the page. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 193 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most pod catchers. Okay, I do have some afterthoughts for this episode. First of all, Harrison Smith's opinion are his own and do not represent mine. In fact, I try not to express my opinion on hot-button issues such as global warming, politics, and generally what sets most people off. <laughs> I thought to get a complete picture of the last living man to walk on the moon, I needed to explain what he thought his opinions were on things, so that's why I put it in his bio. It is not an agenda on my part. <laughs> Believe me, because I don't have an agenda. I am not an agenda person. I just report it. I don't make it up. Do not shoot the messenger. <laughs> okay, I hope that's clear. Harrison Smith's opinions are his own. A few I items I didn't have time to cover last week. Apollo 17 was the first moon mission without a test pilot among the crew. I found uh, Smith's idea to land on the far side of the moon quite intriguing, and I wish they could have done it. What an achievement that would have been, and the far side was completely unexplored. I think they had the technical expertise to do it, but it would have been much more risky. I still think that since it was the last mission, I wish they would have tried it. But I guess NASA is cautious and didn't want to, to risk going out on a sour note. But boy, that would have been cool. I found it pretty interesting that Evans served on the ship that recovered Apollo 17, the Ticonderoga. It must have been a very familiar experience to come back on board his old ship after splashdown. Now, make no mistake, Gene Cernan did not want Harrison Smith on his mission. He had done all his training with Joe Engel and got along very well with him. Cernan felt he was trusting his life to an inexperienced T-38 pilot. Smith was a, also a bit sarcastic and caustic, and they had butted heads. And he was certainly not Gene's kind of guy. It also complicated the social group with the wives. Gene's wife and Jan Evans had become close friends with Mary Engel during the past few years when, while their husbands trained together. And the women were heartbroken when with the crew change. Not only were they losing Joe and Mary, they were getting Jack, who was a bachelor in return, who did not seem to know how to fit in socially. The women dreaded the road ahead. Jan Evans, who was somewhat outspoken, even asked Jean, Do we have to put up with this? I'll, I'll nice this up. Buttocks hole? <laughs> so, Dr. Rock had some things to work through. But in the end... Gene admitted that Jack did a fine job. Now, all that social stuff put aside, sending a geologist to the moon was absolutely the correct decision and was perhaps a bit overdue, as, the, as evidenced by the orange soil discovery and the troctolite 
discovery. Now, having a geologist there really helped give validity to those discoveries. Scientists tend to question what the astronauts' conclusions were, but a trained geologist is much harder to argue with, especially when he's standing on the moon. For those interested in the farm progress, there has been a little. They managed to pour a foundation and deliver our blocks and bricks. That took one day of the two weeks since we last spoke. So it's kind of like watching paint dry. I was encouraged that my youngest daughter, Jenny, has her masonry work completed. She has a crawl space, so that didn't take but three or four days of work to do. And the construction crew are now working on my oldest daughter, Stephanie's basement. They're laying her block right now. Now, her block is about two-thirds done. So Mrs. SRH and I are in last place in construction. (laughs) Something unusual did happen. During the recording of this episode, on the last day, the cell phone went off four times for a tornado alert. So (laughs) I began to think, I'm in a camper here, where can I go? Mrs. SRH was out of the alert zone, so I wasn't worried about her. So it was just me here trying to figure out where to go and trying to get the podcast recorded. The camper was obviously out of the question because those things just fly through the sky. So I looked out the window and I saw Stephanie's big blue construction dumpster surrounded by a huge mud puddle (laughs) with about uh, four or five inches of water surrounding it. (laughs) Hmm, I thought, should I go get into that thing? And there's a bunch of trash in there too. Of course, since it's a dumpster. Then I went outside, looked around to see if there was a better spot thought about using our basement of course but of course that was just a a hole with one side open and then I saw Stephanie's basement well I figured two-thirds of a basement is better than no basement at all so I made that my spot of refuge well there were three tornadoes that came through None of them got close enough for me to see them. Thankfully, I made it through unscathed. Okay, let's move on. Over the last fortnight, we had uh, five contributions, and I would like to thank Mike S. from the UK, who donated at the Apollo level and earned an alien emoji. Marshall V. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level, Johan F. from Finland donated at the Vostok level. Matthew G. from Rhode Island pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level and got a rocket emoji. Yella from the Netherlands pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Our total Patreon donors are at 251 and our total donors for 2021 have reached 370. Our goal is 500 by the end of 2021. As usual, at this time of year, the dog days of summer, it is our weakest time for financial support. In fact, in July, there was a 35% drop in funding. But wait, you say, Mike, there was only one episode in July. (laughs) Well, you're right. But the problem is, August looks to be about the same or maybe more of a drop. So, if you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption, 
please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's Donor Giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, SRH friends. What an interesting day we had. I had gone out to run errands, and wouldn't you know it, Mike is left at home alone with tornadoes to the west, the north, and the east of him. Everyone was worried about being him being in this RV with no real place of refuge. Thankfully, so thankfully, he is okay. Guess we better have some sort of tornado escape plan going on. You know, especially like if something happens in the middle of the night, that's got to be crazy scary. Thankfully, this one was during the day, and he didn't see it, and was relatively calm around where he was, but it was all around him. We were all worried. Well, on the home front now, we have foundations on all three houses. Hooray! Looks like our masonry crew will start when the ground dries up a bit. The managers are all telling us the, the same thing. The main problem is related to the supply of both materials and workers, so it's going to be interesting to see which house is actually finished first. We'll just be glad when someone's up here with us. Now, for the SRH drawing. The winner for this episode will get the choice of a space rocket history magnet, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers, or the SRH archive magnet, or a genuine NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Magnus Badger. Magnus Badger, if you would email us spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Remember, that's spacerockethistory at gmail.com. To tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 370 of you who contributed thus far in 2021. My sources for this episode were NASA, the documentary Untold Story of the Last Man on the Moon, Harrison Smith, full interview by KOAT Action 7 News, the Apollo 17 press kit, The Last Man on the Moon by Gene Cernan, Apollo 17 Flight Journal, Apollo 17 Mission Report, Apollo 17 Timeline, the Internet Archive, Flickr, and Wikipedia. And that is all we have for this episode. I hope you will join us for episode 371, which should be posted by September 2nd. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.